this is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. And welcome to Contra International, a monthly podcast exploring the contradictions of disaster capitalism and the movements across the world seeking to challenge it. I'm Alice Kinghorn Gray. And I'm Ben Ray. So today we're joined by Vijay Prashad, who is Executive Director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. He's a journalist and an activist who's written widely on the global south, including the withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan and the fragility of US power with Noam Chomsky in 2022, and Struggle Makes Us Human, Learning from Movements for Socialism, also in 2022. He's also author of The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World. So Ben, are you looking forward to this one? I am. Uh, Vijay is is a reference point, isn't he, for, for um, you know, politics and, and economics in the global south. He really covers a wide spread of countries. Um, he's a really prolific um, writer. Uh, whenever you think about things in Global South, you always think about checking out what what VJ's saying about it. Don't always agree with absolutely everything he says, but he's definitely one of the most most um, interesting people to read uh, about the Global South. So, so it should be good. Yeah, he's he's definitely well positioned to discuss what is quite a list of things that are, that's going on currently geopolitically. We've got the um, war in Ukraine got the increasing tensions with China. Um, the G7 have just met. There's a forthcoming uh, global finance summit at the end of um, the month in Paris called by Macron. Um, we've got the sovereign debt crisis. Um, yeah. And also an emerging, potentially an emerging um, new non-alignment movement. So um, a lot to discuss. Yeah, and I think we're at a, a moment in history whereby the global south, uh, China especially, but other parts of the global south as well, are increasingly becoming unmoored from from Western hegemony. And there's a there's that contradiction with the West still trying to hold on to its power and countries trying to push back and and, and away from it. So. It's interesting to explore the global south, not just in its own right, but in terms of the dynamic between the global south and, and and the west at this moment. So Vijay, one of the things that um, you know we found really interesting about your work is at this content international, we try to be you know very internationalist podcast, taking interest in all parts of the world. And you're someone who's really engaged um, in in you know lots of different countries. You seem to be quite systematically engaged in lots of different countries with your work. Um, you know, a lot of the time on the left internationalism can be quite a sort of instrumental thing, you know, where we rave about something that's happening somewhere when it's useful for our own kind of domestic political interests. And then we, when when it's not so useful, we just kind of drop it and ignore it. But you seem to be really engaged in a very comprehensive way. You know, you've been in China recently. I saw you were talking about socialism in the Caribbean. You did a podcast about Syria. Can you tell us about just to start off with, how and why you've kind of developed this very internationalist political praxis? Well, the first thing to say is that, you know, I think with the collapse of the USSR in um, 1991, there was a real soul searching for the left. Um, you know, therefore, for most of my life, uh, political life at least, there's been a real sense of, um, you know, looking inward at our limitations, at our weaknesses, and so on. Um, you know, in, in very few countries, has the left been able to go beyond the fact that our reservoirs, working class organizations, peasant organizations, student organizations, have been weakened by the forces, the social forces of globalization, They've been weakened by neoliberal ideology, you know, the ideology that has really attacked universities, where one of the key reservoirs of the left was the student movement. Um, and in looking at, at these weaknesses, 
it became clear that the weakness wasn't in this country or that country or another country. You know, the weakness was, in a sense, in our, um, in our global capacity to move an agenda. Well, you know, there have been many attempts since the, um, since the 1990s to pick up a kind of global politics. There was the World Social Forum movement uh, anchored in Brazil. This produced a wave of, of polit political meetings, you know, really across the world. Um, in Algeria, in India, um, there were discussions, World Social Forum, regional gatherings, continental gatherings, and of course, the international gatherings, which, as I said, were largely held in Brazil. But also there was one in 2004 in Mumbai, in India. Um, the World Social Forum, you know, began to, in a sense, become a victim of its success. It became very popular. Um, it was put together largely in an agenda by NGOs, um, NGOs and, and, you know, foundations, mostly from the North Atlantic world, uh, began to dominate uh, these uh, these platforms. At one point, about half the participants at the World Social Forum came from North America. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was not really um, answering the needs of the global political project. It had done a great job, by the way, but it just wasn't um, fulfilling the needs. And as I said, it was a victim of its own success, it became popular. People wanted to go there. It was like a festival. That itself is a good thing, but limited. About um, now, you know, several years ago, uh, seven, eight years ago, the landless workers movement in Brazil uh, convened a gathering called the Dilemmas of Humanity um, in, in, in outside Sao Paulo in Brazil in 2015. At this gathering, there was a serious discussion about the needs of building an international project. Uh, that project uh, was called the International People's Assembly. And, you know, the research institute I direct, Tricontinental, is a part of the International People's Assembly project. So, yes, you're right. There's a deliberate attempt uh, to build an international process. This time, it's not a process of individuals, as it were, or NGOs. It's political and social movements. So there are over 200 political and social movements involved in the International People's Assembly from all across the world, you know. Uh, as I say, the landless workers movement, peasant organizations in Asia, communist parties in Asia and Africa, um, you know, large political forces uh, in in um, places such as, um, you know, the metal workers of South Africa, uh, the communist party of Nepal and so on. So, you know, this process of building the International People's Assembly, it requires something that people don't think about. It requires trust. Um, it requires that these organizations trust each other. And for that reason, it takes time to build. You know, it's not just a gathering of individuals. It's a gathering of organizations, very hard to build because they have their own political perspectives, their own strategies, their own understanding of the world situation. So really, that's what, um, as part of, of the International People's Assembly, and to some extent on the side uh, with Tricontinental, that's the kind of thing I've been involved in. Mm -hmm. And as a journalist, how how do you find that as working within that uh, that kind of sphere? Does that open up opportunities for you for people to talk to and uh, new people to meet and that sort of thing? You know, I've I've been an international reporter, let's say, for thirty years, and you know, alongside being a college professor and so on and so forth, I've tried to build a mixed career. You know, careers are hard to build. Um, but it's a mixed sort of life. Um, you know, I, I can't say it opens up new areas. It's a little different than that. I'm interested in telling stories. You know, I've always been interested in telling stories. And, you know, in a way, you know, when I travel to different places, I'm able to pick up stories that are available and out there that I might not hear about. Um, look, these days, it's really difficult to get a, um, a job as a full-time you know, international correspondent, particularly if you have a left perspective. Very difficult to get a job like that. You know, left newspapers simply don't have the, the means you know, um, to carry a correspondent to travel here, there, everywhere. It's just not possible you know, to do that. Um, 
so i've always had to be a kind of journalist with a backpack who shows up doing another thing you know uh, invited to give a talk somewhere or invited to um do some sort of research for somebody and and so on um you know i've always taken advantage of the moment to tell stories and you know it gone other days when you know you had uh people like kapuczynski you know being basically um the reporter for the polish news agency going around africa and so on there is no real polish news agency you know mm-hmm. there, there is no um international news agency um you know there was a report published in 1980 called the mcbride report in fact mcbride shawn mcbride was an irish parliamentarian um who headed this unesco commission about the need for a new international communications order and the mcbride report is very important document 1980 you know calls the alarm says that international communications going to shit you know uh, the big corporates are taking over um news agencies are no longer uh, being funded by governments and so on because that was one way to democratize news you know was through um government agencies and so on and all of that ended you know just about when i began to build a career as a reporter mm-hmm. so there was no government news agency to really work for and corporate media is just not interested in sending a left wing journalist to mozambique you know to do a story on a popular insurgency is just not going to happen mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so it's it's becoming increasingly tricky to do to do reporting for the big the big media um let's talk a bit about the some of the big stories of of the moment the the geopolitical situation the G7 um took place in Japan uh, just over just over a week ago I think about 10 days ago um it was all about containing China um what do you think where are we at now with the kind of decline of western hegemony in the global south are are people taking things like the G7 event seriously the people are worried about you know what the G7 are saying or 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 is it become is it got to the point now where a, a lot of the global south is is quite dismissive of 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 the rhetoric that you hear i mean i i've noticed some african leaders um in the last few months um you know being quite angry with emmanuel macron um uh, for lecturing them about kind of um i think it was in, in democratic africa in in the, in the congo uh lecturing the, the leader of the congo about um you know what he should be doing and he said you know francophic doesn't doesn't exist anymore i think there's a namibian leader, leader that said a similar thing to a german ambassador and the german ambassador said there's too many chinese in namibia and he said the chinese aren't doing anything wrong here you know it's, it's it's the germans have a problem not us as 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 the mindset changing now where people are being less um less feeling like they have to you know uh, be under the under the whim of of western political hegemony well you know the g7 or i think what is better called the triad in other words the um, um you know the kind of uh, anglo settler colonies of the united states canada New Zealand Australia one leg of the triad one stool of the triad Europe another stool of the triad and the third stool of the triad is Japan um this triad comprises about 14 and a half percent of the world's population you know just breathe that in i mean that's the g7 effectively in fact the triad is larger than the g7 because the g7 doesn't include all european countries but i prefer to think of this you know as a as a triad it's a term that's there from the 1980s um that's 14.5% of the world's population okay but they spend 66% of the world's military budget um think about that for a minute okay the united kingdom which is a pathetic little country in the planet earth you know it's a tiny minuscule uh, country and yet it's a nuclear power why because of its colonial history um it has trident submarines i mean does the united what is the united kingdom afraid of that it requires such an immense military budget what is it afraid of does the united kingdom in the 21st century really need a um, a a aircraft carrier called the queen elizabeth ii i mean do you really need that i mean your trains are falling apart 
Um, you can't feed your own people. You got food bank queues everywhere, and you're spending so much money on uh, on the military, on the Ministry of War, as it were, properly called. You know, um, so you can't say that the triad cannot be taken seriously because it's very dangerous. It's lethal. Um, it starts wars. It you know demolishes countries. It is a lethal project. You know, ask the Iraqis about that. Ask the Libyans about that. Um, you know, they will tell you about the lethality of the triad. You know, it, it conducts coups to this day. The United Kingdom has stolen the gold from Venezuela, refuses to give it back. That sovereign gold of Venezuela. You know, the UK just took it like that. Why? Because they have massive military force. Uh, nobody can come and demand. You know, the Venezuelans can't send a ship up the River Thames to say, give us our gold back, you know, mm -hmm. um, it'll be blown out of the water, you know, long before it comes near um, the shoreline of, of the UK, you know, so it's a lethal political project. It's a dangerous political project. Uh, the triad is very dangerous. I, I mean, I'm saying this over and over again, because it should not be underestimated. People today talking about the demise of the West, missing out on the fact that the West is not going easily. It is a very dangerous political project. Okay, I've said enough about that. On the other hand, the political legitimacy of the triad has declined greatly. Great decline. And let's just say this has been an erosion. It's not been the plummeting of a cliff. Um, ever since perhaps the war on Iraq, you know, recently George um, W. Bush, who was the president and had his little poodle Tony Blair with him, you know, to go to war against the Iraqi people. Um, Mr. Bush gave a speech, went viral on TikTok, um, where he said, you know, it's outrageous for a country to invade another country, uh, such as the invasion of Iraq. And then he stopped himself and said, I mean, Ukraine. And then he said, and this was interesting. He said, Iraq also. And then he said, I'm 75. Iraq also. <laughs> Even George W. Bush, the architect of the destruction of Iraq, has said Iraq also. You know, Tony Blair is different. The man has no ethical compass. He's never going to say Iraq also. But George W. Bush, for God's sake, George W. Bush, Iraq also. You know, people are fixated on the fact that he says, you know, should cannot invade a country, Iraq. He said it accidentally. And then he stops and says, Ukraine. But what's really important is Iraq also, even he recognizes there's been a real erosion of confidence in the West, in Western leadership since the devastating war against the Iraqi people. Okay, that's there. That's been going for a while. And you can track that, you know, the erosion of confidence. Um, you don't have to go and ask people around the world. You can check the Pew surveys done by the Pew um, you know, organization in Philadelphia and the United States, they ask about global confidence in the U.S. and it's been declining. But when the war in Ukraine took place and the United States and the NATO countries, indeed the triad, but in fact, not even the triad, tried to impose, when the U.S. tried to impose its narrative of the war in Ukraine, making the argument that the war began on the 24th of February, when Russian tanks entered the Donbass region, um, making the claim for that, asking for the condemnation of Russia, asking for weapons for Ukraine, most of the global South simply said no. And they said no because they said, one, the war didn't begin on the 24th of February. This is not a war between Russia and Ukraine. It's a war between NATO and Ukraine, and it has much earlier antecedents. That's one argument people are making. Second, people are saying, no, we will not condemn Russia. We want to end the conflict. That's different than condemnation. We don't want to isolate Russia. We trade with Russia. When Russia had been part of the Soviet Union, it provided our liberation movements with assistance and so on. That's the second refusal. And the third refusal, which is very important, is no, we won't arm Ukraine. Brazil said this under Lula's administration, won't harm Ukraine. Um, you know, even countries that are quite uh, willing to go to number one and two, not refusing to accept the U.S. narrative on the war, not, not even condemning Russia, such as the government of Gabriel Boric in Chile, 
still said no arms. You know, this great refusal, that is interesting because that is actually pushed uh, the global south towards saying that our national interests, our regional interests are more important than the parochial interests of the triad of the United States. Your parochial interests can no longer masquerade as universal interests. And I think that's where we are now. There's an acknowledgement of the danger of the triad, yes. But also there's these this three refusals. We refuse to accept your narrative on Ukraine. We refuse to condemn Russia and we refuse to arm Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Vijay, in that context, would you say that the, it makes sense to talk of a new non-aligned movement of countries? And if we are saying that this is this exists, then do you see any differences as well as continuities maybe in like underpinning ideologies? Because now it's a very different world than it was then. Um, and what maybe are some of those contradictions, tensions, or uh, how would we look at it afresh? Well, I'm really glad you asked that question because this is something that our institute is working on. Uh, we have been throwing out this term new non-alignment because I think it's wrong to call it the non-aligned movement um, because you're right, the context is different. So first, let's do some context setting. The earlier non-aligned movement emerges, of course, out of the anti-colonial movement. Um, where countries, Egypt, India, Indonesia, in an interesting way, Yugoslavia joins it very key way because the first non-aligned meeting is after all in Belgrade. Um, but there were pre-meetings in, in Bandung, in Colombo, in Cairo, in Delhi, and so on. Um, but nonetheless, that was a meeting or rather a process that comes out of the anti-colonial movement, very much influenced by currents of socialism as well. Um, different forms of socialism. They were not all Marxists and so on. Some of them were kind of state-centered socialists in order to protect their industry and, and whatever. But it comes out of a people's dynamic, you know, saying that, look, we don't, we, we just come out of colonialism. We don't want a repeat of colonialism. And so we want a non-aligned world. We don't necessarily want to be in any camp or the other. Now, this was, of course, a little bit deceitful because most of them had a kind of pro-left orientation uh, and were pretty close to the USSR, you know, um, but still they were non-aligned. Uh, they had a block in the UN, the G77. Um, they built institutions, the UN Conference on Trade and Development and so on. Since the third world debt crisis in the 1980s, the non-aligned movement really collapsed. Its political confidence disappeared. Um, countries began more bilateral arrangements with triad countries, principally the United States. Uh, most of them went into the World Trade Organization. They basically ended their policies of protecting their countries, developing the dignity of their people and so on. And so uh, for the last period since the 1980s, let's say for the last 35, 40 years, um, these countries have basically liberalized their trade policies. They've um, cut back on, on you know, funding for education, health, and so on. They have, in a sense, entered the era of neoliberalism. Uh, and now that they've entered the era of neoliberalism, they've begun to see uh, a couple of things. After the, uh, the, the fourth Great Depression of the modern capitalist era that was set off in 2007, you know, with the collapse of the banking system in the U.S., the mortgage-backed securities, uh, you know, worth nothing and so on. That inaugurated a uh, the fourth depression. You know, I mean, we don't call it that, but in our institute, we're going to release a text which is on um, on the theory of crisis, and we consider this the fourth great wave of depression. The third being 1929, um, and then waves of depression in the 19th century. Two of them major waves. Uh, but this is a long wave of depression. You know, it's, it's not a recession. We, we shouldn't get to allow the technical neoclassical economists to say, well, how many, how many quarters of growth or negative growth have we had in order to name this a recession? That's a fraud because growth rates don't measure um, the kind of life chances of people. Uh, anyway, don't want to get too much into that. The point I'm making, though, is that when that Great Depression sets in after 2007. Many of these countries are like, look, we don't have faith in the fact that the United States is any longer the buyer of last resort. 
our economies can't be geared towards the us so what happened interestingly was this opened up the possibility for a new integration um of eurasia where russia became a major producer of energy uh, largely because again of catastrophic us wars against iraq libya and then the hybrid war against iran this opened space for russia to become a major exporter of energy not only to europe but also to other parts of asia to india to china and so on and secondly of course china's manufacturing capacity and its market expanded india's market has expanded dramatically so for countries in the south you know the united states not the only game in town it's not it's it's not a reliable buyer of last resort you know in fact uh, us markets simply are not able to absorb uh, the goods produced around the world because uh, you know credit regimes can't go on forever uh, people are just not getting paid uh, look at the united kingdom during the pandemic incomes collapsed you know um, you've got one conservative government after the other and indeed if you had keir starmer as the as the prime minister would hardly be any different you know he would run a kind of conservative economic policy um, the kind of people the uh, small minded people in charge in the west has meant there's no confidence so that in my opinion has created this new sensibility among countries with very different political uh, opinions india for instance a new fascist government brazil it's a socialistic government and nonetheless you know these two governments um, have something in common which which is they want to put forward the national interest and not allow themselves to be subordinated to a us interest which again masquerades as the universal interest that to my mind is the character of the new non alignment it shouldn't be over exaggerated you know uh, look in, in the g7 meeting mr modi uh, of india took a meeting with vladimir zelensky of ukraine but apparently mr zelensky brushed off lula da silva of brazil um you know so here's one apparently more pro us government india and the other apparently less pro us government brazil uh, but nonetheless it's brazil and india that will meet at the brics summit in cape town in south africa in august of this year and there they will lay out this more details of this new non alignment i want to ask you about um the what increasing reports of of de-dollarization um there was a quite high profile case recently where bangladesh has done a deal with with russia for a new nuclear plant where they used the the chinese currency the renminbi to to finance that deal is de-dollarization something that's really um happening across large swathes of the global south or is it still at the stage where people are more talking about the possibility of de-dollarization see frankly there's some problems with the public discussion about it uh, to my mind it's a little naive the kind of conversations taking place and i'm sorry to be so blunt about it um you see dollarization the use of the dollar as the principal carrying currency for international trade holding foreign exchange reserves and so on that has provided the united states with an immense advantage um one it has allowed the us to essentially export inflation you know they can print as much money as they want um you know they can have an unlimited money supply because their money is not contained within the container of the united states it gives them enormous economic advantages um secondly it allows the us to use um the dollar wall street the various institutions that they control it allows them to use that to throttle countries you know the sanctions against countries the the prevention of credit to countries you know how chile 50 years ago the coup was was produced against the socialist government of salvador allende um by the denial of credits you know that's because of the stranglehold that the dollar has um on the international economic system so de-dollarization would certainly hurt the united states greatly that's there's no doubt about that it would hurt the us greatly um but de-dollarization it's not necessarily going to help countries in debt um because they're still borrowing in some other currency you know um de-dollarization is good to hurt the us but it's not good for countries by them by itself you know <clears throat> if i'm taking my debt in rubles or i'm taking debt in renminbi 
that's hardly itself going to be you know um a great like liberation for for my country okay so that's the first point i would make the dollarization hurts the us but doesn't necessarily help other countries now secondly there's a huge responsibility um in making your currency the global currency is an enormous responsibility because your effective monetary policy is no longer um you know shaped by your own people's needs you have to think about the global needs for your currency so you know then you can't drive a monetary policy um which you know is geared towards um the fiscal needs of of say your government or the kind of credit needs of business in your country you know you you have to look outside say an enormous responsibility okay you know i have my own problems with united states government but you got to give it to them that they did provide a function uh, for a while for the world economy you know i mean that was a function um the function of circulation was managed by the united states government it's not clear that either the chinese government or any other government um is really enthusiastic about taking up the mantle of having a um you know some sort of sovereign currency it's not clear that de-dollarization is going to be um you know met by renminbiization of the world economy it's not going to happen okay so that poses a challenge um, what you're going to see is an increase in local currency trade which i think is healthy um very healthy for countries to attempt this now local currency trade is is just a problem of mathematics you know it's an arithmetical problem if i am trading with one of you let's say with alice and i sell alice 100 of of 100 rupees worth of goods and alice sells me 50 rupee worth of goods um there's a surplus okay of 50 rupees that one of us is going to be stuck with you know um that i'm saying that look i sold you 100 rupees worth of goods you owe me um 100 rupees i owe you 50 rupees well you're stuck with that 50 rupees surplus and then what happens who's going to take that 50 rupees you know you're going to have to find a counterparty that means somebody else has to get involved in the trade uh, which is why local currencies are very good to trade in but problems are there for instance india and russia are trading oil in rupees but the rupees are sitting in an indian bank and the russians can't access it because they don't want to buy so many goods from india um and india can't is not willing to convert the rupees into dollars because you might as well then have done the trade in dollars you know uh, so local currency has its limitations and those who are talking about de-dollarization need to study this more you know we can't just have it as a slogan because that's misleading you know revolutionary movements need to be built on facts uh, not on emotions and if you look at this factually it's not the answer to your dreams of pulling down us imperialism okay yeah no that's that's a good point it's it's not the easy answer um i mean currently the federal reserve holds immense power um it's this kind of ties into what um a, a historical comparison that might be uh, interesting to make um in terms of the interest rates now above 5% and that is having massive consequences on the global south in terms of sovereign debt like in Sri Lanka um and the U- as well as combined with the Ukraine war um affecting food supplies in many countries like Egypt um so how is this new economic reality of high inflation high interest rates um how is that playing out how is it affecting uh, global south countries well you know it's interesting the the african american poet langston hughes um wrote a beautiful little piece after the beginning of the D- great depression 1929 you know when new york city was uh, in convulsion you know people were bankers were committing suicide and so on very disturbing period for the culture of the united states um in the aftermath of of 1929 langston hughes wrote you know from the standpoint of harlem which was a major neighborhood of african american people he wrote you got a depression going downtown but we've been in depression forever um i just think that that captures some of the problems here um yes of course the covid pandemic 
um, the war in Ukraine and so on exacerbated a lot of problems, particularly um, for financial reserves, for foreign exchange reserves. It's increased the pressure on governments uh, to service their debts and so on in the South. Um, but populations of the global South have struggled with um, near starvation levels for years. You know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people have struggled with hunger, um, have struggled with the inability to create decent lives for their families themselves and so on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there has been inflation. Um, but I just want to say that, you know, uh, this is a long-term problem ever since the debt crisis of the 1980s, which has never gone away. It's the longest debt crisis, um, you know, that we have in, in the modern period. Um, this debt crisis has had severe repercussions in many countries, several countries, you know, um, in Europe, in, in the UK, there's a debate about migration, for instance, you know, people crossing the channel, people crossing the Mediterranean, and so on. Why are they coming? Because you've conducted an economic war on their countries for decades, you know, if not for hundreds of years, centuries, you know, the history of colonialism, impoverished countries. Um, and then when the countries got their freedom, and they tried to build sovereign states. Uh, you created uh, lending packages that were indexed to the dollar. And then the United States decided um, to do something very crazy, the Volcker shock, where they just lifted interest rates and pulled all the dollars home. Uh, and then interest rates went up on debts that were, became odious. You know, I mean, they're odious in the sense that these are debts created by the Volcker shock. They were not created by bad spending or bad decisions by these governments. You know, um, countries went into effectively permanent debt. You know, a country like Ghana, um, the Gold Coast, you know, was a British colony, a uh, principal supplier of gold to the United Kingdom. Ghana in permanent debt. You know, how is this possible? Um, Ghana, which, you know, was led by Kwame Nkrumah into freedom in, in the 1950s, 19. 57, Nkrumah stands there, you know, and, and makes great uh, orations about the importance of the future of Africa, not just Ghana. Um, the African countries, 54 of them, um, many of them in permanent debt, you know. Um, so I just want to remind people that, you know, yes, of course, it was catastrophic in places like the United Kingdom to see during the pandemic you know, uh, queues of people at, at food banks uh, trying to keep their families fed and so on. It's catastrophic to see that. But imagine that in so many countries in the world, there are no food banks. Um, there are no food banks. There's no place to queue. You know, that's what I'm saying. Um, and that has been the situation for decades. Uh, there is a permanent crisis in many parts of the global south. And that permanent crisis is simply not going to be addressed um, by rock stars like Bono, uh, one day, you know, crying tears for the African people, and the next day, hobnobbing with killers of the triad as they destroy Iraq, you know. Um, no, that's not how the solution is going to happen. The solution will happen when the countries of Africa, when the Zambians, when the Ghanaians, when the Zimbabweans and so on stand up and they say, we're going to build our own countries. We're going to live um, you know, the hope of Kwame Nkrumah uh, in building a Pan-African project, you know, that's where it's going to come from. So, of course, the situation is bad, but it's been bad for a long time. So in our institute, we've been uh, for the last couple of years trying to produce texts that offer alternatives to um, the dominant paradigm. We, we gathered together a range of research institutes from around the world and we produced a text called A Plan to Save the Planet. Um, it's available on our website. It, it's pretty interesting text. It has a whole bunch. It has a, basically policy prescriptions, which we are mining in our other work. You know, we keep going back and looking at what did we learn about health? What did we learn about, you know, about the care economy? What did we learn about finance and so on? We keep going back. Well, uh, recently... We did a text called Life and Debt about the sovereign debt crisis on the, in, on the African continent. It's a dossier we produced um, a few months ago. It's a really key text for me uh, because not only does the text outline the collapse of the IMF-led project of 
you know, debt and then austerity. Um, but it also carries within it a statement by the collective of African political economists, which is a group of um, Africa continent based political economists who have been thinking a lot about how to generate new concepts to exit the IMF thinking. And the dossier ends with some suggestions, you know, uh, policy suggestions going forward. Uh, we have a dossier coming out later this summer, which is asking about the necessity of a new development discourse. Um, you know, is it possible to think of a new socialist developmentalism? Um, you know, I am not one of those people who believes in small is beautiful. You know, uh, if you have a community garden, it's going to help feed people. Well, it's great to have community gardens. It's really important to develop local sewage um, systems. It's, it's very important to think about ways to better, um, you know, take care of, of common land and so on. You know, these projects are incredibly important. Why? They also involve people in community life, in the collective life. I have no problem with, with you know, a small is beautiful, but I, I don't want that to be the answer to the big questions. You know, how are we going to generate electricity? Uh, how are we going to build an international communications order? Who's going to put a satellite up and who should control it? You know, I mean, I want to live in a world where we have satellites and electricity and, and things was, like that. Was it Jody Dean who said JP Morgan doesn't give a fuck if you uh, plant carrots or something in a very, <laughs> you know, yeah. in, in so many words, it's like, <laughs> and and I think also there's a point there uh, in terms of the the left here anyway that often it's a sign of retreat uh, after defeat and it's you know for all good intentions and whatever but often it can happen after a defeat um and sometimes there is that getting back to basics but also it it can be I think you I'm completely with you on the the need to to build national the state we still have to deal with the state and especially in countries where there's so much extreme poverty that you're actually wanting to lift millions of people out of poverty you're quite right i mean firstly it's important to grow carrots so please by all means grow carrots you know i mean you don't need to anti-carrot discourse here yeah. you, you don't need to mow your lawns you know you can turn your whole lawn into a garden if you'd like it's actually healthier you'll bring the bees back into your your civilization, you know, uh, all these golf courses have killed off uh, so much biodiversity, you know, populate the golf course with carrots and, and God knows what all, uh, by all means. I mean, I have, again, I just want to repeat, I don't think there's a either, you know, or there's a yes and, you know, this is a yes and moment um, because you see, the reason I'm actually for these projects is I believe that people need to re-experience their collective life which has been eroded in neoliberal times. You know, it's very important for people to gather together to build community groupings and so on. The, the experience of the collective life, particularly in the more uh, degraded capitalist societies, uh, that collective life has disappeared. Anyway, let, let's not get into that debate. But I'm very much an and person. You know, I, I'm very much not a, a, a either or kind of thinker. Um, anyway, Let's go go to your point about abolishing poverty. It brings us to China, for instance, directly. Um, among many people in the Western uh, progressive sections, liberal left sections, and so on, there's a great fear of China. You know, there's a sense that China is is doing something terrible. Um, well, this brings together, fortunately for the right, it brings together anti-Chinese thinking. The yellow peril, you know, the yellow peril is going to come across the steppes of Eurasia, the Mongol hordes. I don't know what kind of fantasy of, of fear this evokes, but it brings together yellow peril with the red peril that, you know, the reds are marching in lockstep. The red locusts are going to come in and convert London into a people's republic of, you know, whatever. Um, Ken Livingston is going to reappear in a Mao jacket. You know, there's a kind of fantasy here, which is ridiculous. Um, this is fear of China. Why are people afraid of China? Um, I think some of this is plain old racism, to be honest with you. Um, this kind of inability to imagine a developing country uh, becoming so very um, advanced in its telecommunications, its ability to uh, generate through state power 
um, the abolition of poverty, coming to 100% literacy and so on. If you're a person living, say, in Zambia or you're living in, in Paraguay and you look at what the Chinese have done, it is amazing. You see, people in Zambia and Paraguay don't compare China to the United States. That would be ludicrous. They compare China to Paraguay and to Zambia because they say China was a developing country. China is a very poor country. It fought a war between 1937 and 49. Hundreds of millions of people died, you know, in the uh, anti-Japanese struggle, in the civil war, in the war of warlords, going back even before 1937, you know, from roughly 1911. Um, hundreds of millions of people, catastrophic struggle to build socialism, the great leap forward, millions of people died. You know, the, the Cultural Revolution, what sacrifices the Chinese people have had to undergo. Somebody in Zambia looking at China says, hey, you know, imagine if in Zambia we could have abolished absolute poverty. You know, a country as rich as Zambia, major copper holdings and so on. Um, that's what people think in the South when they see China. But in the West. People see China and they're like, oh, my God, Xi Jinping wants to listen to my phone conversation. Xi Jinping is not interested in what you're watching on TikTok or what you're telling your friends. I'm sure he's not interested. He has bigger things, bigger problems to deal with. Um, one of the problems they focused on is as just building off what you said, Alice, is abolishing absolute poverty. Imagine that. Look at it from the perspective of India. Hundreds of millions of people in wretched poverty in India, looking at China going, how did they do it? You know, well, it was socialism. It was the use of the state. Um, it was to use the state in a significantly backward situation uh, to escalate the ability of people um, to lift themselves out of poverty. Without state power, it would simply not have been possible. Okay. And let me say, people in the UK should relax about this because, um, you know, in in the period of, of, um, of the post-war era, when the consensus was, was there to build a national health service, um, you know, and build national rail and build these national institutions, okay? Um, then the country was perfectly happy to build national institutions, you know, build a, a really good health service, to build a really good transportation network and so on. There was no anxiety about using the state, you know. Um, you know, even now people in the UK defend their state institutions, they defend the national health. Even the conservatives have to defend the national health. So you're so proud of your state institutions, you know, your parastatal BBCs and God knows what not. Uh, and yet somehow when China uses the state uh, to establish social goals, it's horrifying. I think there's a little bit of racism here and there's a lot of anxiety about the fact that um, China's back, you know, until 1820, China was one of the leading economies in the world. And it was really imperialism that created this century of humiliation. The Chinese are unprepared to go back to that century of humiliation. And I think the West acknowledges, understands that. And there's fear about that. Well, you know, the Chinese are not interested in a war, in confrontation. They want collaboration. Why is the West so intent on war? It's a question. If, if somebody said to me, come with me, you know, you're a person of Indian descent. Let's go and eat lunch with Rishi Sunak. He's a person of Indian descent. If we went to sit down and eat a curry somewhere, what would be the first question I'd ask Rishi Sunak? The first question I'd ask him is, Rishi, listen, man, why are you so afraid of China? I would be interested to see what his, what his response would be. Um, Vijay, just to finish up, you've got a, a really good sort of overview of, of lots of different countries. I wonder what you, you think about the health of the socialist movement uh, in general right now. You know, are there, are there strong parties, are there strong movements that you're seeing developing? And also ideologically, what do you think about where, where the socialist movement is at, across the world, but especially in the global south? I mean, the socialist movement is still alive and well, okay? Contrary to uh, the Economist magazine or whoever keeps giving it obituary. It's alive and well. Um, you know, working class struggles will continue to erupt. Peasant struggles will continue to come. Contradictions develop the struggles. You know, it's not possible for struggles to disappear. Uh, but you asked a really important question, which is, what is the organizational health and what is the ideological health? 
here we have a lot of challenges ahead of us. Um, organizationally, there are problems because, you know, the right in many parts of the South um, uses the most vicious means uh, to go after our movements, you know, arresting people, assassinating leaders, and so on. This continues into the present, you know. Um, in Latin America, Africa, Asia, we still see regular assassinations of political figures, you know, local figures. You see, the best way to dent the confidence of people is to kill their local leader. You don't have to go after the national leadership. Uh, and also there's less press coverage, you know, less interest. Some young trade unionist is, is, is disappeared or shot to death and so on. That continues. That hurts us organizationally. Uh, it's hard to raise funds because the people's general well-being is down. Um, their uh, wages have been deflated. Their incomes are low. They don't have the kind of money to pay dues, you know, as they used to. So there's less funds and resources for the organizational capacity of building the left. Okay, So organizationally, these are the challenges. We're still getting attacked. We don't have resources. That's a structural problem because of deflated incomes. Ideologically also, of course, there's a problem. I mean, the problem ideologically is that in a way, I think we have to revive confidence in the possibility of a post-capitalist socialist world. Um, you know, th there is a hesitancy here. People are not sure any longer. You know, did we screw it up? Um, is China socialist? You know, these debates have confounded our ideological clarity. Um, you know, in, in my opinion, the question is China socialist is the completely wrong question because socialism isn't a litmus test. Socialism is a process. You know, you're in a process. Um, the USSR was part of a process. The process ended in 1991, but it will pick up. You know, you can't stop. Uh, the old mole, as Marx wrote, burrowing under the surface, you know. So we have to renew faith in the possibility of the socialist project and its process, you know, not be hesitant about it because that hesitancy then makes us collaborate with reality. You know, you'll end up saying, well, look, let's think about some immediate reforms. Reforms are important. We must fight for immediate reforms always. But reforms are not going to address the fundamental questions before people. So you've got to have this multiple perspective. But really, in a way, reviving the confidence of our movements for transcending capitalism and inaugurating a socialist, that, that to me is the key ideological question. Underneath that, there are a million challenges. You know, How do you do this? How do you do that? But let's not get caught up in the details. Um, I think... You know, we got to dream again and dream big because the challenges are big. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contra.substack.com and find great articles and more at contra.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Contra Scott.